Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast today another friend and comrade of mine, Daniel Hummel. Daniel is Director of University Engagement at Upper House, which serves the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's also an expert on Christian Zionism. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be back with you guys. All right, Dan, let's start with the first question. So last time, um, listeners should check out our earlier app with Dan on Christian Zionism, but we, we really left off in the 1970s. And of course, the 1970s for historians is most famous for the so-called rise of the Christian right. So so Dan, why don't, why don't we go into that? What does that even mean? How could there be the rise of a Christian right that had been, you know, pretty much there, at least since the 40s and the 50s, which is when I think you could refer to something like a right wing in the United States in a particular way. How did that get off the ground and why is it important? Yeah, and you could even go back a little further. I think of uh, the historian Leo Rabuffa, who had the book, The Old Christian Right, which uh, talked about some figures in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. So thinking of the original fundamentalist movement. Yeah, so when when uh, this has been a, a hotly debated topic, and uh, I think maybe a, an easier way to think about it is the new Christian right or the new right is something in the 70s. There are plenty of historians who've shown that there wasn't necessarily a disappearance of the Christian right or of Christians being politically active in the mid-century period. But by the 1970s, you definitely have a new organizational structure that's being tied in more and more closely with the Republican Party of the 1970s that does give uh, conservative Christians, particularly more Protestant, evangelical, fundamentalist type Christians, uh, more sway in the political conversations on a national level. There's been plenty of debate over how much of that is actually a journalistic creation or creation by, uh, by people who want to uh, have different narratives for why things are going poorly on the progressive or left side uh, that, that don't look internally. Uh, but there's definitely a sense that uh, there's a new generation of leaders that are emerging in the 1970s, some of them coming out of like televangelism, people like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, many of them in the South, both of those figures are in Virginia, um, and, and a groundswell of uh, populist energy on the right expressed in a particularly evangelical way that's rallying around, you know, you, you can think of even in Nixon, the silent majority type concept that, that a lot of the Christian right and same people are in what Nixon called the silent majority. Uh, but later on, rallying around Reagan's 1976 campaign uh, uh, for president in the, in the Republican primaries, uh, and then, of course, rallying around Reagan in 1980 as well. So it's a big concept. Christian Zionism is just one, uh, what, you know, one issue within the broader emergence of the Christian right. So let's not talk about the Christian right only because it, that's such a capacious topic. It could be its own series. But but how does Christian Zionism fit into the Christian right? Is this, I, I imagine, this is this is a, a balkanized movement uh, that, that there are very various ideologies moving within and throughout it, um, particularly after the 60s. So how does Christian Zionism fit in and how does it relate to what's going on? You know, Camp David happens in the late 1970s. We have Carter. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think one of the important things to say is um, Christian Zionism is not the main driving force of, of the Christian right. There's been plenty of debate about that, too. What, what makes this new emergence of Christian politics uh, come about in the 70s? And you can think of there's people like Randall Balmer who argue it's really about race, and that's the, um, that's the defining issue. And there's other arguments that focus on abortion and, and politics around that, around sort of the backlash to the 60s. Uh, counterculture, all that kind of stuff. So Christian Zionism is not on that level, but it is an interesting uh, movement or, or issue within the broader Christian right, in part because most uh, Christian right leaders agree that Israel is really important to 
U.S. Po- to U.S. foreign policy, and and that it's not just a, a strategic issue, but it's also this theological or religious issue as well. So if we rewind to the first uh, episode that we did, um, most of the actors in the Christian Zionist movement up through the 60s were not uh, Christian right or not even proto-Christian right type people. They tended to be people that gathered around Billy Graham, who was this, who wanted to appear to be a centrist, you know, a pastor to the president's type person, and who definitely held conservative political views, but was not uh, tuned into the populist, certainly the Southern uh, politics of someone like Jerry Falwell that, that comes later. And so when we, if we just sort of zoom in on, on the mid 1970s, the Christian Zionist movement at that point is pretty small. It is uh, largely focused around getting evangelicals to tour Israel and to give money to different causes in Israel, and is, is still located around the, the Billy Graham orbit, you could say. What happens with the Christian right is that people like Jerry Falwell, who took his first tour to Israel in the early 70s, people like Pat Robertson, who took his first tour to Israel in the late 60s, elevate this issue and make it basically one of the, the only two really big foreign policy issues of the Christian right platform. The other one being uh, sort of reigniting the Cold War and, and particularly sort of uh, opposing the nuclear freeze movement and things like that. But once you get to 1980 or so, uh, if you look at the moral majority, which is the big Christian right movement that Falwell leads, they really only talk about foreign policy on these two issues, on the Cold War and on supporting Israel. So what is the theological basis of a more populist uh, Christian right becoming interested in Zionism? Why does someone like Falwell become uh, interested in Zionism at this particular moment? Yeah, so so, some of this is, is really in the, the fundamentalist theology that, that someone like Falwell inherited. And I, I just wrote a book this year on, on the rise and fall of dispensationalism, which is a particular theological tradition that Falwell comes out of. And in dispensationalism, the idea is that God never rejected the Jewish uh, people in the way that most Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have understood that rejection. And, and so that God was still planning to do things with, with Israel, with the Jewish people, and particularly in fulfilling the end of the story, of the, the eschatology. Uh, and so for someone like Falwell, he sees the Jewish people as someone who, as a group that is still in covenant with God, and that that covenant is, is being expressed through the state of the modern state of Israel. So the state of Israel is always going to be on the side of God in any conflict it's in, and that it has a divine right to the land that it was promised uh, in the Bible. So Falwell has those things percolating, and if you pay close attention to his speeches, he talks about this all the time. He also sees the U.S. as involved in this because he sees the U.S. has a divine role or a divinely ordained role to support Israel, to support the Jewish people as part of what the church is called to do, as part of what Christians are called to do. So it's tied into um, this, not just what it, what uh, what is special about Israel, but what is special about the United States in relation to Israel and the Jewish people. So um, I do want to get into the policy, but quickly, is there anything that the Israeli government is doing in this post-1973 period to appeal to Christian Zionism, or is this just considered something out of whack? No, they're, they're very interested in it. They've, they've been interested in, in even Christian even evangelicals in the U.S. all the way going back to the 1950s. They actually are more interested in evangelicals after the 73 war, in part because the broader Christian world is much more divided about um, condemning the Yom Kippur War in October 1973, and about fully siding uh, with Israel as the um, the sort of defender or the the um, the agent in the right in that war. And so, after the 73 War, many of the more liberal or mainline uh, Protestants that the Israeli government had been lobbying and cor- and courting uh, start start breaking away and start talking about Israel much more as. Um, a powerful nation in the region as one that is an occupier of the West Bank and the other territories that uh, Israel conquered during uh, the 1967 war. And, and, and at, the, at the same time, evangelicals are pretty lockstep, at least on the leadership level, in being fully supportive of Israel. So uh, in the, in the mid-70s is actually when you see the Israeli government, particularly its foreign ministry and its religious ministry, actually beefing up its staffing around trying to understand who evangelicals are, to understand where the, the sort of power centers are in evangelicalism, and to actually work closer with American Jewish organizations at the same time uh, to try to get more involved with evangelicals and to try to figure out how, how can this 
broad dispersed group of Christians that doesn't really have a hierarchy like the Catholic Church does or even like the many of the mainline churches do? How can the Israeli government and American Jewish organizations somehow turn all this latent energy and interest in supporting Israel into a political movement? So they're, they're not dictating the movement, but they're definitely involved and, and are, are watching closely. Just a quick question. Of course, the mid-70s is when Gush Emanim, the settler movement, really gets off the ground in Israel and of, uh, sort of po- post-1973, the end of the labor dominance in Israel and the rise of Likud and Menachem Begin. Does that play into this at all, or is it really too early to talk about stuff like that? Uh, th- there's definitely an overlap between religious Zionism and uh, certainly post-73 uh, religious Zionism and, and Christian Zionism. Um, there's not very close personal context yet. They're, they, these two groups are far too uh, ensconced in their own religious traditions in the 70s. Someone like Menachem Begin is interesting because he is someone who is much more overtly religious as a Jewish leader, as an Israeli leader, uh, than were many of the labor Zionist leaders before him. And so he has a particular appeal to many Christian Zionists um, who see in Begin a, a, what they would consider a more authentic Jew, someone who's actually... Uh, to them practicing the biblical way of, of, of being a Jew. And Begin plays that up a lot. Um, and and also on Begin's side, he sees Christian Zionists as, as the better types of Christians uh, as well. So yes, there's definitely uh, some interest there. And, and there's certainly some ideological interest as well between the right wing in, in Israel and the conservative, uh, the conservative world in the U.S., particularly around viewing um, the settler, the settler movement as something that is not an existential threat to peace, uh, in, or, or even if peace is, is, is the, the goal. And to see that the land that, uh, it, particularly the West Bank that is being settled, that that is rightfully Israel's and that it should never even be up for, um, for negotiation in a future peace agreement. Just a question, uh, about that. Do, when they say the West Bank, do they also mean on the Eastern side of the Jordan? Because that's like the traditional Judea and Samaria, or do they just refer to the occupied West Bank? Um, it depends on who you're talking to. Uh, for, for Christian Zionists, particularly American Christian Zionists, they tend to take the lead of, of the Israeli leadership on this. So um, uh, you'd, you'd, have to, you'd have to find the, the, per, the, the exact sort of uh, quotation to know exactly what they mean. I would say that, uh, and this happens, by the way, for the rest of the story up, in, up until today, when, when Christian Zionist leaders end up sort of pontificating what their personal views are, that, that don't align with the official Israeli views, those Christian Zionist leaders tend to be marginalized or tend to be uh, put back in their place. And so you find very few times where there is someone like Jerry Falwell or later on someone like John Hagee who talks about what they think the border should be uh, that doesn't sound ex- pretty close to whatever the, is, the official Israeli position is. And if they do go outside those boundaries, Pat Robertson did this often, you see that they get marginalized over time uh, from those those leadership levels. So often the Christian Zionist uh, position is to defer to the Israeli position. But, but how, why, why? It seems un-American. Uh, seems un-American. Uh, it, it is, um, it's, it's strategically, uh, it's savvy. Uh, it's a way to actually align with the Israeli government and be in, in influential conversations, be in the room where it happens, uh, you could say. Uh, and, and this is a, this is a, a strategic choice that Christian Zionist organizations, um, the, the, the people who are most invested in bettering this relationship between evangelicals in the U.S. and around the world and the Israeli government, they learn this very quickly, um, that there are certain issues that are, may, you might talk about in your church or in your Christian only zone, things like Jews converting to Christianity, uh, that you would never talk about if you were in mixed company. And one of these things that is learned over time is that Christian Zionists should not, in mixed company or for the public, pontificate about their own views of what the border should be or what a final settlement should be, and that they should, they're sort of blessing Israel by letting Israel dictate those terms. Understood. All right, let's move into politics. Let's talk about Camp David. Let's talk about Jimmy Carter. First, evangelical president, and then basically the- Yeah, this is, um, sorry, Danny, I, I, I wanted to, to sort of, uh, ask about this because Carter is an interesting guy. He occupies uh, the uh, the only lane I think is an evangelical leftist or left of center president in American history. And I'm curious how that evangelicalism of, of that bent kind of uh, frames the question of Zionism in Israel. He's also an interesting guy because he's really the president where U.S. policy toward Israel has advanced so far that the U.S. begun 
doing foreign policy on Israel's behalf with the Camp David Accords, which is a, a trend that obviously has has accelerated uh, quite a bit in recent years. Um, but Carter then goes on after his presidency to be maybe the only anti-Zionist U.S. ex-U.S. president. Uh, it's sort of you know fascinating kind of uh, trajectory that he has. But maybe we could start with the notion of a left evangelical president and what that means in terms of Zionism. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of, I, I think, I remember one uh, document I was looking at, it was in the American Jewish Committee archives, and it was from 1978 or 79. And it was reading Carter as the wave of what evangelical politics is going to be. And it was a, there was a line in there that said, we need to prepare for a million Jimmy Carters in the 1980s. And it's like, wow, what a, what a misread of where the evangelical <laughs> politics was going. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh anyway yes uh jimmy carter's interesting i mean part of this is is realizing that jimmy carter sure he was an evangelical or, or more precisely in, in 1976 he was a born-again christian which was the big term that was being bandied about that year he was also a southern baptist and this he and maybe that's as important as born again for someone like jimmy carter and back in the 70s this is before the southern baptist convention swung to the conservative side in the late 70s and then until today the Southern Baptist Convention was very broad in the 70s. It had what was what were called the moderate wing and then the conservative wing. And Carter was definitely on the moderate wing. And so, um, you know, you can see even in um, in the in the 70s, um, Southern Baptists aren't voting like they do later on in the 80s and 90s uh, so far to the conservative side. So in some ways, Carter was representing a constituency. Now, because of the, the religious politics, the denominational politics, um, and then the broader evangelical developments in the 70s and 80s, Carter becomes this uh, representative of a left evangelicalism, though there's even people further to the left of him, but certainly a more moderate evangelicalism. Uh, he definitely has a different frame for thinking about the Middle East than someone like Jerry Falwell does, who is a fellow Baptist, but um, you know, much different in his theology and politics. And Carter, I think the, the easiest way to think about uh, Carter's view is it's a very religious. I think everything Carter did flowed out of his identity as a Christian. Uh, but he, he saw the Middle East as the homeland of the Abrahamic faiths. And he would use that term very often, particularly strategically in Camp David, because he found it very significant that you know, it was him, a Christian, it was Anwar Sadat, a Muslim, the head of Egypt, and then it was Menachem Begin, a Jew, the head of Israel, that were coming together to try to find peace. And he found that to be uh, very biblically resonant and very, as, as he would say, Abrahamic uh, resonant. And so if you if you take the Abrahamic faith, uh, the frame versus, say, a Judeo-Christian frame, which you can put a, a bunch of precedents um, in that one, you can see how there'd be a much different, there'd be a multipolar uh, conversation that would lead to a much different type of politics, a much different expectation of give and take between the different parties uh, than a, a Judeo-Christian framework, which really sees Muslims and the broader Arab world as outside of the sort of in-group or the children, uh, uh, the religious children that are part of this. So that's the first thing to say about Carter is that uh, he's coming at this maybe with a much different religious frame than even other evangelicals would. So what's the characterization of Camp David among, uh, let's say, the mainstream evangelical community, and by which, by that I mean the conservative wing. Um, how do they regard what Carter is doing? Are they uh, pleased that this is going to maybe work to Israel's benefit, or maybe a little bit miffed at the idea of giving up uh, Israel, giving up land? Or what is the what's the sort of uh, impression that they have? They're mostly skeptical. They they are observing Carter making critical remarks uh, in press releases or in, in press conferences and elsewhere about settlers, even in you know 1977, 1978. So they're already skeptical that Carter is not um, uh, on board with that. They know uh, that he is theologically different from them. So he doesn't have the dispensational theology. He doesn't have much uh, conservative Baptist theology. He's a more moderate uh, Baptist in that sense. Um, but they're, they're also torn because Menachem Begin is, is engaging in these talks as well, and they tend to like Begin. And so there's, there's often, often the dynamics of the, the sort of public conversation is demanding that Begin get, not be boxed in, that Begin get room to negotiate. Um, ultimately, this is a, what I was saying before about the deference to the Israeli perspective. 
ultimately most evangelicals, particularly those who are being in, who are involved in organizations that are trying to work in Israel or work with the Israeli government, they are ultimately skeptical and critical whenever they feel like Begin is not getting the, his fair share. And so that that of course plays into uh, a deeper uh, sort of a, a deeper level of politics where Begin is then leveraging these critics in or these potential critics in the U.S. to try to get what he wants uh, as well and try to put pressure on. Um, on Carter uh, through through those channels as well, but um, ultimately, when when the when the deal is signed, um, the the evangelicals accept it. They don't you know try to uh, force a change or anything, but they are um, they are disappointed among other things that Israel is giving up so much historic or seemingly biblical land, including the entire Sinai Peninsula. Also, there's a few settlements that are have to have to be evacuated because settlement activity had already started in the 70s in the Sinai Peninsula. And they're critical of that as well. And that'll be a pattern as, as well as this is one of the areas where there's a big tension with the Israeli government is because when the Israeli government does decide to um, to somehow give up land or, or pull back settlers, they do this in Gaza in, in 2005 as well, you get critiques from certain quarters of Christian Zionism that this is going against God's plans or this is going against the covenantal relationship. And um, and that those are you know tensions that the that they have to negotiate. Just as a as a final my final question on Camp David, there was this two pronged approach that Carter took at Camp David. One was to to negotiate a, a direct peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, but the other was this framework for Middle Eastern peace that that he was pushing. That Begin and Sadat both kind of said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, we're we're behind that," and then they didn't do anything with it. They just negotiated the direct peace treaty. Uh, I I have to imagine that uh, evangelicals in the U.S. were at least happy that the framework for Middle Eastern peace didn't get go anywhere and that this was limited to just a, uh, an Egypt-Israel uh, process. Oh, yes, of course. They, they, um, they well, f- for certain theological reasons, they're skeptical of the idea of a framework for peace being uh, achievable that that there is I mean for many of these evangelicals who believe in in a certain end time scenario like the Middle East is just going to be plagued with uh, wars and and destruction until Jesus comes back and so they're skeptical of peace in that way there's also part of their particular um, prophetic beliefs is that there will be a false peace deal that is imposed on the region from the Antichrist uh, we're getting into real uh, we're left behind territory here, but uh, the Antichrist will will force a peace deal on the entire region that's ultimately a false peace and ultimately leads to Israel's destruction. And so you, you get sort of references to these types of things when, you, when, when any president starts talking about a framework for peace in the Middle East. This is one of the canards that comes up from the more, um, uh, the, certainly the more bold Christian Zionist sectors, is that this feels like the false piece that is that we need to watch out for and we need to mobilize against. So um, Carter's was a version of that, but it, it was so uh, it was so unenthusiastic, picked up by the parties themselves, like you mentioned, by Egypt and Israel, that it never really even became, you know, a reality that that they could respond to. So, Dan, I think this brings us naturally to the question of who is the Antichrist and how do we combat him? Just kidding. Uh, I think this brings us to. Uh, I'm so glad we finally got to this because uh, <laughs> it's been, you know. So how do we? The focus of this podcast for so long. Well, unfortunately, uh, well, Henry Kissinger was was a uh, was one figure bandied about. So he, we can that- we can uh, sort of cross his name out. That, that apparently that okay. is not true. Cross his name out. All right. So on the long list of potential. Okay, so it's Cheney, right? I mean, it's Cheney now because <laughs> right. he's the he's the last one standing. It'd be a good dual biography of Kissinger and Cheney. But uh, Dan, in all seriousness, I think this brings us to friend of the pod, Ronald Reagan. So actually, before we talk about Reagan and Christian Zionism, I, I'd like to talk about Reagan, you know, the the, the man with theological beliefs. There's been a, quite a bit written about this recently, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, as I think like a sort of Grover Norquist-inspired search for Ra- Reagan the evangelical. What do you think this guy actually believed? You know, liberal-ish Hollywood labor leader to conservative anti-hippie California governor to evangelical-ish president? What's your take on Reagan and theology? Yeah, I think Reagan was a dabbler. I think he read a lot, or I don't know if read is the right, I think he was exposed to a lot of different uh, beliefs. I think he also was a savvy political person. And so uh, maybe like an FDR figure, a lot of people left a conversation with Reagan, assuming that they 
agreed with Reagan or Reagan agreed with them. And I think that, you know, the truth is probably not, not that clear. In terms of particularly around the Middle East and end times, uh, uh, sort of um, scenarios that Reagan believed, there is an interesting sub, you know, sub field, sub genre of trying to decode what did Reagan believe about the Middle East. Um, we know that he read Hal Lindsey's The Lake Great Planet Earth, which was the big, it was the best selling nonfiction book of the 70s. So it's not super unique that Reagan read it. Um, but uh, this is the dispensationalist pop dispensationalist version of how the world's going to end. And a lot of it had to do with the Middle East in, in the 1970s. We know he read that. We know he um, referenced Armageddon a number of times. We know this was actually part of why he was so interested in nuclear uh, negotiations in the 80s is because, or at least this is what he said, which is that he had these fears that were rooted in some type of sense of biblical prophecy or, or end times uh, fear that nukes were going to be the end of the world and, and, and he wanted to try to avoid that. Um, ultimately, I think his, his actions in the Middle East show that if, even if he believed these things, these were not dictating much of what he was doing on a day to day or month to month basis in the Middle East. I think there were certain, other, there are probably other people in his administration who thought more of that way. But I see Reagan as someone on a lot of fronts who was seemingly on the, on the surface, the Christian rights, you know, best friend and, and sort of culmination of, 20 years of activism uh, that started with Goldwater and ends with Reagan. Uh, ultimately, I think, uh, though he was quite conservative, I think for a lot of the hobby horse issues that certainly evangelicals ha held, including things like um, a national abortion ban or national pr uh, protection of prayer in schools and, and, and certain views on uh, or, or policies toward Israel and, and other things, he ultimately wasn't their friend on that and he didn't have any theological framework to push those things beyond what he felt he could do um without losing any political cost so i think that's where i'd land with him on on almost any anything having to do with theology very interesting so of course the big middle east thing in reagan's first term and really the big middle east thing throughout his time in office was lebanon yeah. um is there any discussion amongst Christian Zionists about Israel and Lebanon and what they think or how Reagan would respond? It's kind of like the forgotten Middle East conflict, but it's actually super important, sort of sets the stage for the next 40 years. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and it, it brings down Menachem Begin. I mean, he, he ultimately leaves office in 1983, a broken leader. And, and maybe you could contextualize what exactly is going on in Lebanon. I realize I didn't do that. <laughs> right. Um, so there's there's a lot of um, uh, uh, sort of militant activity and border disputes between Israel's you know, northern border and Lebanon. And throughout the 70s, Israel does these sort of temporary or or uh, short invasions. And and uh, they should feel very similar to what Israel's done in Gaza and, and elsewhere. Uh, in 1982, uh, Begin uh, basically launches a full on uh, uh, invasion and occupation to try to, um, uh, to try to uh, corner the, the, the Palestinian leadership and, and others. He's also allying with uh, Lebanese uh, Christians who, uh, there, there's a whole other situation in Lebanon that's very sectarian. And, uh, and, and by, 19, by end of 1982, Israel's basically occupying large chunks of Lebanon. And um, the, the most famous incident is the Sovereign Shatila massacres, where there are about 800 uh, Palestinian refugees who are massacred by IDF soldiers. And, and this is actually an interesting point to bring up with Christian Zionists, is, is um, Christian Zionists are very skeptical that this actually happened. I mean, they, they're already, already makes it sound like they weren't doing this before, but they're throwing doubt on the official reporting on this issue, that the, the number is the actual number, that, that this wasn't actually done by um, Muslim militants or something like that. Um, but, but this massacre is a, is a flashpoint where, um, some of the most vocal supporters of Israel in the U S in any forum are, are Christian right leaders who are standing behind Israel. And of course they move their narrative from this didn't happen to, well, if this happened, there had to be a reason to, well, this is what happens in war and we still need to support Israel. So you see that pattern that, you know, emerges, uh, uh, all the time, uh, with the way evangelicals, um, sort of relate to Israel and, and, and some of the reporting that comes out of the Middle East. Um, so sorry, Dan, to, to stay with Sabra and Shatila, because this, yeah. this is an incident that is probably shock. It would be shocking to anybody who 
hasn't looked at the the history of the U.S. Israel relationship in terms of the level of just kind of outright, hey, you guys got to knock this off messaging that came from the Reagan administration to the Israeli government once it became clear exactly what had happened at Sabra and Shatil. I mean, the Reagan administration was pissed off internally yeah. uh, and communicated that in no uncertain terms to to Begin and to uh, his government. And I, I wonder, was there any sort of rupture between the Reagan administration and, and Christian evangelicals in the U.S. over that, over the, the Reagan administration taking a somewhat, at least by mo- sort of contemporary standards, somewhat hard line uh, with respect to an, an Israeli military atrocity like that. Yeah, it was a it was a growing break. So that wasn't the only thing happening. That there was, um, you know, the Israeli surprise bombed an Iraqi nuclear reactor uh, in the same in the same year. And this is something the Reagan administration uh, strongly denounced, um, and uh, and is and Christian Zionists were very angry at the Reagan administration for doing that as well. Um, you know, it, it's like like many things in 1982, 83. So in the middle of a presidential term, it looked pretty. You know, Reagan's approval rating wasn't that high. This was before the economy uh, was turning around as well. And so there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate over whether Reagan had basically sold out his 1980 campaign uh, promises. Uh, ultimately, of course, we know the 1984 election is is uh, uh, very overwhelming for Reagan. So a lot of these people come back to him. But it's a deeper uh, rift that um, uh, in one way is is within the conservative uh, uh party or the, the Republican party, which is between the grassroots, which wants much stronger and more moralistic and more clear, um, policies. And then the, the administration, which is actually trying to, uh, you know, enact and govern. Uh, but there's also an interesting rift between the executive branch and the, um, congressional, uh, branch. And so for, or the legislative branch. So, um, this isn't something unique to Reagan, which is, uh, when, even when Republicans come into office, um, they are often being pressured by Congress people and particularly in the House, but also in the Senate, who have much stronger views on Israel, on what the U.S. should be doing to support Israel. And they have to navigate those as well. So Reagan's feeling that. And that might be where a, a group like the Moral Majority, which can uh, is very large in terms of the, the membership in the early 80s that it has. But really the way it's, it's, it's felt is that it can pressure it's Congress people in certain areas of the South in particular to become vocal on a national stage on an issue like uh, Israel. And, and that, and outside of, of sort of magazines and press releases and other things, that's the main way that they can, um, they can exert pressure. And so you see that within even Republican conversations, not just evangelical conversations in 1981, 82, 83, that Reagan's policies in the Middle East are not stacking up to what the conservative movement had wanted. And Reagan just says tough shit, basically. I'm going to do what I want. Um, in action, yes. I mean, he is very good at, at you know, sort of verbally nodding and, and agreeing. Um, but uh, ultimately, he's not taking cues. I don't see that. He's not taking cues from the Christian Zionists uh, in his, in his uh, policy. He's definitely um, got a, a different set of uh, interests. Uh, I do think uh, some of the I mean, he's he's obviously like most American presidents, like all American presidents, more or less. He's obviously tilting toward Israel in a lot of the assumptions in the region and what is causing the problems. Um, But there's also there doesn't seem to me to be some type of beholdenness that Reagan has to this domestic group. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to the nation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. So how does the Christian Zionist movement proceed over the course of the 1980s? How did they win more adherence to their cause? How did they become more and more mainstream? And of course, this is all basically leading up to the Oslo Accords in in the early 1990s. But let's stick with the 80s. How does the movement proceed? How does Reagan respond or not respond, as the case may be? Yeah, the the 80s are an interesting period. 80s and 90s are an interesting period for Christian Zionists because they have a lot of... uh, 
they have a lot of attention on them. They are this this issue of Israel is folded into the broader Christian right. Um, but there's also not a ton of clear organizational structure to how to express that interest. There's certainly no national organization that can speak for all Christian Zionists or something like that. The ones that could, something like the moral majority, uh, the moral majority is much more interested in domestic policy issues than it is in foreign policy. And so with, where the moral majority is really going to put its emphasis is in uh, an issue like prayer in schools or abortion. So throughout the 80s, there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk, a lot of uh, high-level uh, meetings between Christ- Christian right leaders, Christian Zionists, and Israeli leaders. Um, there's a lot of touring of Israel by uh, you know, Senator Jesse Helms and, and others who are sort of political figures that rep- claim to represent the Christian right. Um, but there's not a ton of actual uh, lobbying pressure. Uh, one interesting thing that's happening in the 80s is that American Jewish groups are becoming much more comfortable working with Christian Zionists. And uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, I don't probably need to explain all of them. For, for many American Jews, it's very odd to be aligned with evangelicals on this one issue and almost nothing else. Um, but you see in the 80s that there are certain American Jewish leaders who are understanding that, particularly after the Lebanon War, that uh, support for Israel is going to become much more polarized, or maybe not, maybe that's overstating it, but there's actually going to be a conversation around how much the U.S. should support Israel, and that there's this big untapped group of conservative evangelicals who seem to have no issue with with sort of uh, full support for, for Israel. And so someone like Nathan Perlmutter, who is the head of the Anti-Defamation League in the 80s, uh, has to do a lot of um, PR work around why his organization, which in many ways uh, is really opposed to the Christian right. And in fact, releases full reports documenting how someone like Pat Robertson has anti-Semitic remarks in his uh, sermons and and all that kind of stuff, how yet he will still work with Pat Robertson when it comes to supporting Israel. So that's a, that's a type of relationship between American Jewish organizations and Christian Zionists that, that um, smooths out in the 80s, you could say, though there are always these uh, tension points, particularly when someone misspeaks on the Christian Zionist side. Um, but, but that becomes really important later on as well, because um, as Christian Zionism continues to grow and grow it, it, in terms of numbers in the 90s and after, um, th- it becomes much more important to even just the American domestic political conversation, where do evangelicals sit on Israel? And so American Jewish organizations have to take increasing um, attention of, of, of evangelicals in that way as well. The last thing I'll say on this is that um, by the end of the 1980s, it's even looking worse on the organizational side for Christian Zionists than at the beginning. The moral majority closes up in 1988. Um, it, it, it doesn't have any money and follows on to other things. 1980 is an awful year for televangelists as well. If you uh, recall your Jimmy Swaggerts and uh, many others who have really bad uh, telev- uh, uh, scandals in their, that are very public. Um, but uh, but by, the, by the end of the 80s, there is sort of the situation that was even before the rise of the Christian right, uh, which is that there's a lot of energy around supporting Israel. There's certainly tons of best-selling books, there's magazine articles, there's tours, but there's not an actual organization that they've built on a national scale that can uh, sort of speak for X number of evangelicals and say, this is what evangelicals believe about Israel, and this is what a politician should do to, to win our support. And that's a that's an, an issue that only gets solved, you know, 15 years later in the 2000s. So uh, does Reagan basically just make nice with them, but not really listen to them throughout his second term? And that's the best way to understand it. I want to close out Reagan before we get into uh, H.W. Yes, he he um, he makes nice with them. I mean, by by the second term, there's obviously things much bigger things happening on the foreign policy front. Um, for the U.S. with um, negotiating with the Soviet Union. And so, and, and of course, Reagan's getting a lot of blowback from conservatives on that front as well. Um, and there's also changes happening in Israel with the first intifada in 1987 as well. But yeah, I, I think you can, you can see Reagan as um, really interested in, in, in some type of peace deal in the region, uh, which, you know, he's not unique on that, but he's interested in, in pursuing a peace deal and he sees Christian Zionists as not helpful on that front. There's something that needs to be managed, but not to be actually leveraged. 
Let's talk about H.W. Bush, because he is really the last American president to adopt a much more skeptical attitude than anyone following him. Um, Obviously not a Christian evangelical. My guess is he harbored some prejudices toward evangelicals, um, as you know, from where he came from, Prescott Bush in in Connecticut, mainline Protestant establishment. Um, But maybe I'm wrong. So uh, how did how did H.W. relate to Israel and how did Christian Zionism fit or not fit into his plans? Well, certainly Christian Zionists would not fit into his plans. He had uh, no love lost between uh, Christian Zionist leaders and and Bush. Um, and you certainly see this by 1992 with, um, with uh, though a much different figure, but I think you could see a lot of the Christian Zionist leaders would be much more sympathetic with a Pat Buchanan type um, critique of Bush than, than anything else. Though Buchanan is uh, different on Israel, but um, you know, Bush in a lot of ways saw himself as continuing Reagan's um, foreign policy uh, on a lot of fronts. And of course, the big thing was um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and, um, and managing that. And so the, the, the best thing you can say, I think, about Bush in terms of his um, Middle East policy, and we can get into the peace process as well and, and, and what was good and bad about that. But um, you know, Bush it basically let the peace process negotiations that started in 88, more or less, um, that, that included Arafat, included Israeli leadership, that would ultimately lead to the Oslo process. Bush allowed uh, diplomats on, on the U.S. side to continue those talks uh, to the, to the um, ability they could um, and to sort of push for that, that type of um, comprehensive peace process. And he saw uh, maybe in a way that um, harkens back to um, uh, maybe Eisenhower, maybe maybe someone else. He, he was thinking of a, of a regional approach that, that he, he considered balanced. Um, and, and that was his um, primary value system when he was, when he was evaluating the region. And he, he as, as best as he could, he tried to not in, involve domestic politics or moralistic values in how he was um, assessing the region. So by the end of the 80s, where is the Israeli government on the Christian Zionist movement? Have they basically made common accord? Does the first intifada affect anything or not really? Uh, yes, they, they've, they, they're deepening their ties as the Israeli right becomes much more of a, of a, uh, a regular participant in Israeli politics. Menachem Begin in 1977 is the first uh, non-labor politician to be prime minister. And so um, the, the, seven, the late 70s through the 80s is, is when the Israeli right becomes basically not just a blip on an otherwise labor history of Israeli politics, but it becomes clear that, that uh, the Likud party, the right wing is here to stay. The, the ties between them and evangelical Christians deepens even more. And some of these ties are uh, cultural or or media related, but some of them are also organizational. And so you see uh, groups like, um, it's the biggest Christian Zionist group in the world today, the organization. It's called the International Christian Embassy. It's headquartered in Israel. It was founded in, in, in it's headquartered in Jerusalem. It was founded in 1980. And um, it, it um, grows throughout the 80s to become uh, a massive. It has, it has um, outposts in dozens of countries. And it also hosts Israeli leaders uh, every year for its large uh, rally around the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. And by 1990, that um, that gathering is about 5,000 people. It's one of the biggest tour events in the year in Israel. Um, and and Israeli politicians are appearing at it every year and giving it its support. And so that that's a that's how the relationship is deepening at that point. Yes. Yeah, so the institutions are coming into form. So, Dan, I, I mean, obviously, the the major Middle Eastern event of the the Poppy Bush presidency is the Gulf War, and the Gulf War is sort of tangential to Israel, but it does come into play as Saddam Hussein starts firing Scud missiles at Israel in an attempt to create a wider regional conflict that, that fails, uh, you know, uh, dismally from his perspective. Um, but how did the evangelical community in the, in the U S respond to the Gulf war? What were kind of the, you know, the, the, uh, how were they approaching the conflict Were they maybe hoping for a wider regional war Was Saddam, the, uh, the antichrist, what was going on uh, among, uh, Christian evangelicals in the U S 
he was definitely a candidate. Uh, there was a book, uh, it sold a, a lot of copies. I think it came out in 1990 called The Rise of Babylon. And it had a big picture of Saddam Hussein on the front. And, and that is a, The Rise of Babylon is a prophetic, you know, expectation. And um, yeah, I, I think in that sense, Saddam and the, and the Christian Zionists were expecting or hoping for the same thing, which was, a, a, I don't know if they, I don't want to put the Christian Zionists were hoping for it. They were expecting it, a, a, a regional-wide conflict that would be prophetically significant. Um, that that's the main frame that many evangelicals came to the Gulf War with was, you know, they, they were sort of saying, okay, it's in Iraq. That's not, you know, it, it, Kuwait, it's not necessarily in the Holy Land, but they were looking for, okay, when is Israel going to be looped into this war that's so close uh, as opposed to, to other wars? Um, so, so there was a lot of anticipation, speculation. Uh, this is a great time for a war for a lot of these pop dispensationalist types who were still recovering from the televangelist scandals I mentioned in the late 80s. This is a really, um, if those are negative news stories, this is sort of a positive news story that it seems like their reading of the Bible is somehow being fulfilled um, as we're, you know, as we're watching it on TV. There was a book that came out in 1974, right after the October 1973 war Armageddon Oil and the Middle East. And it was by John Walvard, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Sold a few hundred thousand copies, which was good, but not great uh, for that period. They reissued it in uh, 1990, and it sold over a million copies right away. And so it was a sign that there was a latent interest in, in thinking about the Middle East in these prophetic terms. And this is also really important that, that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union is happening at the same, you know, in the same historical moment as the Gulf War, because... Um, the, the, the Soviet Union had been such a prominent part of, of end times speculation for decades and decades. And, you, you know, th there's a big open question is, well, none of the, the readers of prophecy had seemed to uh, predict that the Soviet Union was going to collapse in 1991. Looks like a lot of egg on your face. Looks like uh, something's amiss in how you're interpreting these texts. But at the same time, the sort of uh, focus is shifting to the Middle East, and there's a lot of answers to those questions now, which is, ah, yes, that was one phase of prophetic time, but we're moving on to the next phase, which is going to be focused in the Middle East, but much the less Soviet so. Just the warm-up act. They were like the opening act, and now it's really, yeah. That's right. That's right. So there was a ton of, of speculation, a ton of writing, um, particularly on the popular level in the, in the early 90s, that was almost you know, reinterpreting the, the prophetic tradition that had been alive since the 19, you could say since the first Red Scare, maybe even before that, um, that saw the Soviet Union as the primary agent of chaos and of uh, evil in the world. And maybe the Antichrist would be coming from, you know, from the communist world. That now that that seems to be passing as the primary threat, that, um, that now it's the Middle East. And now it's, um, it's, it's some mix of Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Palestinians, um, whatever it is, it's going to be sort of Muslim and Middle East in focus. So that, that leads me into a question then. This, this shift from the, the big enemy, the big bad being communism and institutionalized atheism to the end times enemy is Islam, effectively. I mean, this comes out, you get uh, you know, in Christian writing, you get it in semi-serious writing like Samuel Huntington and Clash of Civilizations. The, the it it sort of coalesces around the idea that Islam, Islamic civilization, uh, is the thing that we have to worry about now. Does that happen on a dime? Does it happen? Do we see roots that go back further than the fall of the Soviet Union in terms of in you know in terms of this shift? And how does that? How does the evangelical community sort of adjust to the fact that uh, this isn't a Cold War? This isn't like two competing blocks. The communists are all over there and we're all over here. You have countries like Saudi Arabia. You have countries like, uh, you know, pre-Gulf War Iraq. You have Egypt uh, who are, you know, kind of inside the tent with the U.S. And yet they are, you know, majority Muslim countries. And I, I wonder... Uh, or pre-revolution Iran, for that matter, you know, that uh, that these places exist, uh, you know, these countries kind of operate as as uh, proxies or, or in relationship to the U.S. Uh, so it's not just a good or bad uh, kind of dichotomy as you could make maybe with the Cold War. Right. And I think here it's, it's really important to 
see Christian Zionism and see evangel- the politically active wing of evangelicalism as within a broader conservative conversation. So they're not having to come up with all of the frameworks and theory by themselves. They can rely on the broader conservative interpretation of these things. And that's where you really see that there is actually a, a good prehistory to the 1990s of thinking about a post, or I don't know if it's post-Soviet, but a world that is not just the U.S. versus the Soviet Union and capitalism versus communism. And I, I can think of something like Bernard Lewis, the, you know, the, the Middle East historian, who as early as the 19, I think 1976, is writing about the return of Islam as a threat to, um, to the Western order. And um, I can think of someone like Benjamin Netanyahu, whose brother, Yonatan, dies in the, in the Entebbe hostage rescue in 1976 and gets very involved in anti-terrorism uh, as he called it, anti-terrorism work, even in the late 70s. And if you go back and you read around that anti-terrorism literature, a lot of it is about how religion, and particularly Islam, it has a uniquely terroristic sort of component to it. And so that's in the that's in the mix, you know, way before we're thinking about the Middle East as the next front in, uh, in American foreign policy. And so I think evangelicals are, um, I mean, they're not, I don't, some of them are reading Bernard Lewis, probably most of them aren't, but they're absorbing a broader conservative conversation that is increasingly putting religion and particularly Islam at the forefront of, 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 of this, this looming threat. And, um, and so by the, by the 90s, it's an easy shift. I still think it, it, there's a cognitive dissonance when you get to the sort of specific prophecy interpretations that still has to be smoothed over because there are very specific things that people were claiming up until 1991 that just did not happen. Um, but you can see how the shift would be a little smoother than if they had to come up with, um, oh, uh, it, let's also you know, start introducing Islam as a problem as well. Like that, that had been in the water for at least 15 years by that point. All right, Dan, uh, we're, we're coming to our time here, and uh, happily you've agreed to come back for another episode where we'll discuss Oslo and the 90s and 9-11 and that how, how that shapes everything. But before we end this episode, why don't you just give us a sense of where Christian Zionism is in the early 1990s before we get to Oslo? So on the popular level, as we were just talking about, there's a lot of energy around viewing the Middle East and what's happening in the 90s as prophetically significant. So the, to the extent that Christian Zionism is um, tapping into that, which it, it very much is, it's on a strong footing and it's got a lot of prominence, a lot of good money and marketing behind it. Organizationally, it's still uh, it's still sort of casting in the wind. And after the moral majority collapses in the late 80s, the next big Christian right organization that's attempting to structure the entire movement is the Christian Coalition, which is run by Pat Robertson. And uh, and, and this is another organization. It's, it's sort of more savvy than the moral majority. It, it, it does more on the local level. It's more national. The moral majority was actually quite Southern in membership. The Christian Coalition actually manages to bring in other regions. And Israel is a big issue in the Christian Coalition as well. But again, it's the same issue. If you're from the Christian Zionist perspective, it's the same problem as the moral majority, which is that the Christian coalition has, you know, a list of 20 or 30 issues that it cares about. And most of them have to do with domestic politics. And most of them are much more important to the average Christian coalition supporter than Israel is, um, just by the, the importance, uh, you could say, of domestic politics and how Americans think about the world. Um, and so there is a, there's definite interest in Israel. There's definite, certainly as the Oslo process starts up, there's a lot of concern and questioning around where Israel is headed, where the whole Middle East is headed. Uh, but it is not, from an organizational standpoint, on as solid footing as it, as it would get to later, even as there's a lot of discussion around how evangelicals are being, uh, are peculiarly, along with American Jews, you know, sort of the most vociferous supporters of Israel in American politics. That's a great place to end. Dan Hummel, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back again soon. 